This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I had a different message that I worked on for most of my study time. And this is what ended up coming out, which is completely opposite of what I was studying. And I think it has something to do with the fact that Leslie and I have been cultivating a tradition with our kids uh, that is becoming pretty precious. And that is our kids are at the age where they really want to know our story and our testimony. And it's interesting because there's when Leslie and I were uh, first married... Our love story was so fantastical to the world in which we lived that we wrote it down in a book, and that book went all over the world. And so, Leslie and I, still this day, it's one of the top two or three best-selling books on relationships ever, and that Leslie and I wrote. And so, our story is a part of our life, but not necessarily a part of my kids' lives, if, if that makes sense. In other words, I don't, they don't pop out of the womb and I start telling them about my love story with Leslie. And yet there's so many layers to the story because the same decisions that we made in our relationship, we made in our marriage, in our family. And then uh, as that flowed in, into uh, this particular ministry that is before us even now. And one of the things that has been a kernel thought, and I've been trying to work it over in my soul for a while. It's, I think it just sort of, God was working me through a study process this weekend and then deposited this as a focal point. And I can't even explain to you how it happened, but I, I, I'm actually very excited about this particular message. I'm not sure why, uh, other than I think it's going to be a tremendous exercise in just beholding the power of God, even if it's just for me personally. But uh, I've sort of mapped out 17 key decision points uh, in my life, moments of obedience, that defined everything for who I am. And the message is on obedience. That's, that's really the crux of it. And obedience is hard. And there's, I'm going to introduce you to two kinds of obedience. One which is human. In other words, go clean your room. Yes, mom. And the other, which is divine. Love your neighbor as yourself. Turn the other cheek. Walk the extra mile. There is something that is beyond what we are physically capable of doing that we have been commissioned to do. And that obedience, when we show it to Jesus Christ, is an evidence of love. But it's because he loves us that he commissions us. Every one of his commands is layered in love. He desires us to live. And so therefore he commands us to repent and to believe. And so let's just begin this journey. Uh, see how it goes. Defining moments, defining moments of obedience. Boy, this is a long title. Defining moments of obedience. A study in the difficult but blessed path of faith. So... 
it isn't defining, like we're going to define moments of obedience. Let me define for you moments of obedience. These are defining moments. Defining moments in our lives, and I'm going to use some illustrations from my life, but as I do, I want you to grab a hold of what God is doing in your life right now or what he's done in the past or where he's pressing you towards. That obedience is the language of a believer. This is what we do. If we believe, then we show it in and through our obedience. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Classic favorite of parents. And it's just a fact. Now, some people have strained this to mean that a child always obeys, but a child is not always a child in the sense that they are being referred to here. However, this obedience is referring to what I'm going to call a small letter O obedience, okay? You actually could obey your parents, maybe not in the fullest sense of what God intends as far as attitude and heart, but you could obey and do what is right even without divine intervention. You know, there are a lot of kids that have been obedient over the years that didn't, hadn't necessarily yielded their life to Jesus Christ yet. It's still a good thing to do, don't get me wrong, it's just not exactly what we're talking about today. What we're talking about today goes more into this category in Acts 5.29. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, so what's the context? What we have is a, a standoff. There's been a healing of a man at the Gate Beautiful, and uh, something radical is taking place. Remember, the church is increasing, and the teachers of the law, the, the leaders of the land, the religious leaders of the land are threatened by whatever this is. And so they command uh, Peter and John to not preach or teach in the name of Jesus again. Do you imagine being told to do that? And what we have is a command that ironically came from a source that God has commanded the people of Israel to submit to, including Peter and John. I mean, the priesthood? You should submit to them. If they ask you to do something, they're put there for a reason. However, this is a form of obedience that is beyond. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. There's a higher level of obedience, and that is to the word of God. And when we obey the word of God, sometimes that can transgress the obedience of men. And in so doing, it can create hardship for our life, as it did for these guys. Their life became harder the moment they obeyed God. That obedience, which I'm going to refer to as capital O obedience, is something that is empowered by the Spirit of God. Small O obedience, that should be a really small O there, and big O obedience, that should be a really big O. The, the difference isn't big enough uh, to show you. But the first is human. The second is divine, meaning it's God-empowered. The first, so we'll talk about the small O obedience. Think of a very, very small O here. I have a little recipe for you. It doesn't look like a mathematical formula, uh, but obedience equals love, submission, self-sacrifice, trust, and decision. So this is just a little recipe for how a child works. When we are interacting with our parents, we love our parents. If we don't love our parent, well, typically we're not obedient. But it's not just love. It's also submission. And of course, love and submission are closely associated, but all these things are closely associated. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus is very clear to show that we demonstrate our love to God in the fact that we obey him. 
And so as a result, love and submission is very, very important. But there's also a degree of self-sacrifice. In other words, if I am being asked by my parents to do something, let's say it's, you know, take this trash out to the trash can. Well, I'm not saying that's a tremendous degree of self-sacrifice, but there is a degree. You have to get uncomfortable. You have to get up off your seat. You have to walk. Oh, the labor. Yes, it's hard, and it's a degree of self-sacrifice. Also, there's a degree of trust that is involved in this. This is a command that when we heed it, things go well for us. In other words, when we trust our parents, when we love our parents, when we submit to our parents, there's also a confidence that our parents know what they're doing. They're leading us in a healthy direction. If I take the trash out, you know, it's not going to blow up the house. <clears throat> and decision. That's also another key aspect of obedience because you could have all these things and there's still that moment of decision when you're sitting in the chair and your mom says, could you take the trash out? And it all comes down to that decision. But all these things woven together equal something. They equal what we know as obedience. When we decide to say yes and we submit and out of that loving trust, we do, this is obedience. So now I'm going to introduce you to the second or the capital O, obedience. And you notice that I capitalize all of these things because this moves to a whole new plane. Okay, because what God is asking us to do is motivated out of a love that is not natural. In other words, to obey God demands an unearthly sort of love. It's a love that is divine. The Spirit of God plants within us for our God. And it demands a submission that is also capital S. Because what we're being asked to do is not easy. It's not just taking the trash out. Because the level of self-sacrifice that is engaged in this picture is a complete denial of self. A forsaking oftentimes of popularity, of comforts, of the things of this world. Sometimes we end up empty pocketed after we obey. We have nothing left to our name. Sometimes we're thrown into prison. Sometimes we're stuck up on crosses and we die. I mean, this is serious stuff. Capital O, obedience doesn't come out of your own willpower. It comes out of God himself. And faith is a huge factor. You notice in the first one I called it trust. In this one I'm going to call it faith because that's our typical biblical word for it. But the reason that this is important in obedience is we need to believe that our God knows what he's doing. Because sometimes he's leading us into very dark hallways, and we have to trust him. And that's the one thing he says, is I need you to obey me right now. I know it's going to go dark. You're not going to be able to see, but I'm saying keep walking, keep moving. You have to have faith in his nature. And of course, there's that decision. And it all comes down to that. When that decision of yes comes in, what we have is kaboom, obedience. And it's something that changes the world in which we live. Speaking of Jesus, a fascinating statement that has probably been confusing to a few of us in here. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now in this, I actually made capital, the O, just to help you out here. In other words, Jesus, we know that he lived a rather exceptional life, just to start with. And he would have been obedient to his mom even before he had a lot of time to learn things through suffering, if that makes sense. In other words, what we see is the pattern of how a man is built. 
Yes, a man must first submit and learn obedience to his parents, but there's also another capital letter that we need to add on, and that's the O to obedience, where we need to learn to be dependent upon the Spirit, to be broken, to be willing to suffer in order to follow all the way through to the ends of the command. This isn't just take the trash out. This is carry the burden of sin for the entire world. And how did he learn that form of obedience? How did he learn capital O obedience? Key, don't miss it, through what he suffered. In other words, you want to learn capital O. You want to move past just taking out the trash when you're asked and doing the simple things that have minor levels of discomfort to them. You want to be a Christian in this world and do the hard things. You learn that sort of obedience through what you suffer. God wants to work capital O obedience into our lives. Some of you are wondering if this is the right message for you. It's like, ah, I'm not exactly sure if I want capital O obedience worked in my life. Didn't you just say the word suffering? I did. I did. I said it with a smile too, I think. But that is only learned through the rigors and pains of testing. You see, there's all sorts of little moments in our life, and that's what I want to emphasize here, is there's defining moments in which we learn obedience. And those defining moments all have a certain degree of pain to them. It's not always like the pain of a hot poker searing into your flesh. It's the pain of discomfort, the pain of reputational uh, danger, that if I go in that direction, they're going to think funny thoughts about me. That's hard. When you take out the trash for your mom, there's no funny thoughts being thought about you. There's just no risk of reputational loss there. It's small O obedience, but this stuff, this capital O stuff is hard. And it touches us at the deepest part of who we are. And every aspect of our firstborn life says, don't get up from that seat and don't do it. You'll lose everything. You see, there's two aspects to our existence. We have a firstborn life called the old man. And when we come to Christ, we are supposed to discard that and we're supposed to put it off. We're supposed to be born again. And when we are born again, we no longer function after that first voice that says, stay seated. Now we function after a different power. It's a second voice, if you want to say it that way. It's the voice of the Holy Spirit. And he says, rise up and walk. He says, move forward. I've given you the power to do it. You see, when you're looking in your own pockets when you're in your firstborn state, and God says, go, pick up your cross and follow me. We're like, I'm really struggling here. I don't have the mustard, the stuff, the power to do that. To literally pick up an execution device that literally causes mockery to come. Everyone thinks you're wrong when you pick up a cross. You're the criminal. I don't want to look like the wrong one in culture. I want to look good, right. I want to look intellectual, smart. And yet God says, I need you to follow me. I have a purpose for your life, but you have to forsake your first life. You have to forsake your first instincts. You have to come follow me. The obedience tests, moments that define my life and course. So I'm going to go through 17 of these, okay? The reason I'm giving you these is just because it's really hard to show you how this works unless we just get practical. And we just start showing you little moments because it's interesting. My moments way back in the day seem so easy compared to what I face now. And yet, how did I learn what I have now? I don't even want to give myself a capital O. We're going to give just a bigger font size to the O. 
In other words, I'm still learning obedience. I mean, there's still things to this day. You, I, I say to God, you think this would be easy for me, God? <laughs> I mean, how many times have I seen you faithful? Every time I've ever said yes to you, you've come through. Why do I still have that latent hesitation? Oh! And so in this process, those original tests, they were hard for me. They were the hardest things I'd ever gone through in my life. And yet what God was building me for are harder tests. He's training me for a capital O. He's training me for tests that literally would mean laying down my life. So 17 short stories of decision. Each of these decisions below have four things in common. I'm going to go through the four things that they have in common. They were difficult in the doing. In fact, so difficult that in and of myself I couldn't do them. They asked of me something that I didn't have in myself. You ever felt that? Where God is asking you to do something that you're like, I can't do that. Well, that's pretty normal. That's my life. In other words, if it was up to Eric Ludy to pull off the Christian life, I would have failed a long time ago. Praise God that he gives us himself. Number two, each of these stories that I'm going to share with you invited me into a form of suffering. And I'm going to call it a form of suffering because when you think of suffering... You think of you know, someone torturing you or you being in a prison cell and someone kicking you with a boot. That's not exactly the full measure of suffering. Those are definitely extreme levels of it, but there's all sorts of gradients of suffering. And every gradient is useful to a Christian, every one of them. Just like I could talk about uh, weightlifting, and some of you, you know, could lift up you know, the bar, and we could say, that's not lifting weight. And you could say that. However, for you, at that age, it was. It was heavy. And that's the same with every form of suffering. There's different gradients, and some guy could be bench pressing 700 pounds, and it's like, okay, now that's suffering. Well, even it's still the same when you're benching 10 pounds for the first time. In other words, it's a strain. You've never gone through it before. Each of these decisions hammered at my pride and begged me to give up comforts. They took me by the hand and walked me down a long corridor of public humility, of social misunderstanding, and a strange and unfamiliar discomfort of soul. So each of these circumstances I'm about to go through with you, they were circumstances, they're their circumstances, oh, speaking of the, the items uh, in the list, their circumstances were all attended with hooded figures. Think of Lord of the Rings. Uh, with hooded figures sporting dark and foreboding looks. But when they were followed, these mysterious figures transformed before my eyes into brilliant pictures of Christ's love, mercy, and triumph. One of the things that if we were all to compare notes in here is that when we have been obedient, when we have followed Jesus Christ in and through the hardest moments, the moments themselves look dark and hooded. Uh, they don't look like the type of thing we want to follow. And yet Jesus is saying, take my hand. Like, ah, God, can we make this easier? Can you look prettier on the outside? I mean, this doesn't look good. And yet each one of them, as I followed, transformed before my eyes into a picture of his grace. Everyone. And for what's true about all these short stories, they all rank in my short list of best decisions ever made. That's quite a statement. Because these are the hardest things I ever went through, and yet these are the best decisions I ever made. The season of first steps. The choice to not hop into the blue bulldog. So my roommate in college had a truck, an old beat-up pickup. Uh, we called it the Blue Bulldog. And in, in college, we had what's called a Jan term. 
which we had one class for all of January, and I had taken ballet that year. Yeah, we could talk about that at a different time. <laughs> my, my motives for even taking it were a little sketchy, and uh, everything, about, everything about that season was a little off in my spiritual life. I was a freshman in college, and uh, when I'd been home on Christmas break, God had done something in my life to ask me a question. Uh, a man had come up to me when I was at my parents' 25th wedding anniversary, and he had just simply said, uh, Eric, where do you stand with Jesus? And I had been wrestling with that, wrestling with that, and I'd still been veering off. I was, hey, I'm still a Christian. I prayed that prayer. Hey, God, could you just leave me alone? Hey, look, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm at a Christian college. Everything's great, right? You know, I'm, I'm doing fine. I wasn't, and I knew it. There was a conviction in my soul. There was a drawing of the Holy Spirit. And I remember uh, Steve had planned at the end of Jan term, we were going to go to his house in Olympia, Washington, on the other side of the state, in the Blue Bulldog. Everything was packed. Everything was ready. And so as we went out to the vehicle, I had had this clear sense that God was saying, I want to meet you. I want to encounter you. I want you to encounter me. I need you to stay home. Everyone was leaving the campus. The campus was going to be a ghost town, and I like people. I don't want to do that. And yet I remember, as hard as it was, to say to, to Steve, I can't go. I need to stay here. Why? I just need to stay here. What? But you can't just bail out on me now. I need to stay here. I went into my dorm room. Everyone had left the campus. My sister had given me a book that Christmas called No Compromise. It was the life story of Keith Green. And she had handed it to me, and I was like, a book? Why'd she give me a book? She said, I think you're really going to like it. So I took it up to college. Didn't like to read books like that, especially bad covers. It had a terrible cover on it. <laughs> and I reached up, and I had to know. It's like I knew God was speaking to me, and he wanted me to read that book. Sat down, read that book. February 2nd of 1990, I yielded my life to Jesus Christ. I made a decision not to hop in the Blue Bulldog and do what I wanted to do, go and have fun for a week. Instead, I encountered God. And that decision marks a beginning in my life. The decision to leave the normal behind. So already I felt like I was leaving the normal behind. I was starting to begin to behave weird I was praying for revival on the campus, going door to door in my, in my dorm and inviting people to Bible studies. I wanted people to see Jesus. I wanted to see Jesus. I wanted to know what the life of Jesus was like. And so in this process, I remember God getting a hold of my life and asking me to leave school and to spend a season focused on him. Oh, this was so hard. I have a family that all are well-educated, and they really were applauding the fact that I was setting the pace for all the younger cousins by going to college. And when I stepped out, I tell you what, the noise and the reverberations were something. I felt it so deeply. I wanted approval from my family. I wanted everyone to like me. And yet God was saying, follow me. And yet that decision set a course for my life of not making decisions based on what people want me to do or what family expectations are but what God wants me to do. So I was in a missionary school, and we were traveling around the country. God had been doing a lot in me, and so I'd been just sort of 
rehashing everything and how I thought and how I reasoned. I wanted to I wanted to think like God did. I wanted to live the way he wanted me to live. And so in the, re- in the realm of relationships with the opposite sex, I'd made a decision. I had so messed up this area of my life, I wanted to do it right. So I wanted to begin to love my spouse even before I met her. That was, that was my decision. I wanted to live as if she was watching me. And if she could see me, she would say, ah, that guy loves me. In other words, if she could just spy on me, she'd see me honoring her in all my conversations and the way I lived and the way I talked with other girls. And so I made the mistake on this bus ride. Everyone was talking about, you know, dating and, and their relationships and all that. And I made the mistake. First of all, I didn't want to talk to anyone about it because I knew no one would understand it. And so I got asked a question. It's like, so Eric, I don't remember the question, but I made some statement about the fact that I love my spouse even now. Well, that didn't go over too good. That was like a lead weight to the conversation. And I, even one of the leaders said, that's ridiculous. You can't love someone before you meet them. I go, well, I'm doing it. Uh, and so we, we end up in Monroe, Louisiana, and the leader of our team was be asked, by, it was this huge rally, youth rally, and they wanted to know if, they, if we had someone on our team who could speak on purity. And so the leader had someone standing nearby that said, I guess Eric Ludi has a lot to say on the subject. That's what happened. And so the leader comes up to me and says, Eric, I need you to speak tonight. You have 10 minutes. Uh, and uh, 10 minutes to speak, but I had like five minutes before I was going to be speaking. I'm like, okay, uh, whoa. And even as he said it, it's like I knew I was supposed to. That's what was extra weird about it. And I knew what I was supposed to say. I didn't want to. In fact, I was begging God to get out of this. God, how did I get into this? I'm not supposed to be speaking. I'm not a speaker. What am I doing? And so I was sitting there in the audience, and I am sweating. And I cannot imagine getting up there and sharing what I'm about to share, because if I do, they will reject me. This entire audience will not like it. At that point in time, no one had ever shared something like that. I had never heard it in my entire life growing up in youth group. I was going to talk about the fact that God isn't interested in just in physical purity. He's interested in purity of the inner man. And if you're looking at a woman with lust, you're committing adultery with her in your heart. Well, that might be normal for you guys. That was not normal at the time. And I got up there and I spoke something. I, I mean, I was trembling. I remember right before I got up, I made a deal with God. I mean, I was like, God, please, 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 don't ask me to do this. Don't ask me to do this. At the very end, I said, I'm willing, but you're going to have to hold me. I remember trembling as I walked up there. It was probably a terrible speech. I have no idea what I said. All I remember was dead silent. All you could hear is that random cough. <laughs> and the, no one said anything. I finished. No one applauded. I sat down. It was dead silent in the room. And the leader came up after me and said, huh, well, I'm not here to preach holiness. That's what was followed with. I sat there all alone. My team came up to me, confronted, formed a little committee, confronted me, said that I'd brought condemnation to the team and I needed to confess that, I needed to make it right and seek forgiveness. I said, I can't do that. I can't do that. I gave you what I felt was loving truth and that is that God cares about your thought life. God cares about the way we're living. And I had to say that. I was asked to say it. And I wouldn't apologize. Well, that set a course in my life. In other words, that moment, I can pinpoint it in my life as one of the most significant moments in my life when I was willing to say the unpopular thing and then not apologize for saying the unpopular thing. Standing all alone by the bus. So 
we go to this mega church. We're, we're traveling through the country as a mission group. Uh, on our, we're just about to head off to, I think it was Bulgaria at the time. And uh, so we're, we're traveling around, and we go to this uh, mega church, and someone is up there speaking. I remember just being in the crowd way near the back and with, with our entire uh, team. It was about 30 of us. And whatever was being said, it was, it was heresy. I mean, it was just horrible. I could not believe. I'm looking around going, am I the only one that cares about this? Remember, I'm just a young guy. And young guys aren't supposed to say anything or do anything. I am already feeling extremely uncomfortable with what God has asked me to do so far. And I'm just saying, God, have I arrived now? Am I past the point where I need to do uncomfortable things? That's what I was waiting for. I was waiting to arrive at some point when discomfort could leave. Because I don't like it any more than you do. I wanted to be done with that. And I knew in good conscience I could not sit there in this church. I'm thinking, God, don't do this to me. So there I was in the midst of this church, all my team around me. I stand up and walk out. And I didn't know where to go. So I walk out to the bus, and it was locked. So I stood there by the bus, the whole service, waiting for the team to come. They come out, and they're all sort of talking as they see me. There he is. There he is. What do you think you're doing out here? I'm just sort of waiting to get in the bus. Could you just let me in the bus? (laughs) Oh, horrible. Number five, giving up my position in the class. So there was one, one of the students in the class uh, the way they would do it is you had to pay your tuition. If you hadn't paid by a certain time, then they would remove you from the school. And I, I, my tuition was paid. And there was another student that had been warned many times, and I overheard something about it. And so I was concerned. I was praying for this person. Then it came to the day where they were going to be removed. And I was up early praying in my quiet time. At one of the most awkward things I've ever gone through in my life is I felt like I was supposed to give my position in the class and my full payment and take her position of debt. It's like, God, that is crazy. And I remember I opened up, uh, it was Oswald Chambers that I opened up to read my daily devotional and everything in it. I actually have the little clip from Oswald Chambers and I'll read it to you in a bit. And uh, I knew what I was supposed to do. That decision had a massive impact on my life. I mean, each one of these, I'm just prepping my kids for this. Each one of these, I could go into each one of these stories and tell all the story around it And they're powerful stories, and they are hard because I got booted out of the school. I was in the position of not having paid my tuition, and no one knew it. Eric just disappeared. And the difficulty I went through, suddenly having no access to food, suddenly having the situation where I had no advocate on my side. All I had was what felt like stupidity reigning in my life. Am I that stupid? as to do this. This other person is celebrating. Everyone's so excited because God supernaturally supplied for them. Meanwhile, Eric's out on his backside. And yet, what God did in and through this story defines me. I saw God's faithfulness. I saw God supernaturally care for me in a situation when I had nothing. Out of obedience, I suffered, yes. But what did I also see? I saw triumph. Responding to the prophetess. Doesn't that sound like an interesting story? So I'm on the same mission. These are all grouped together because this is all sort of in a similar season of life in order. 
And so I'm at this one church. I'm, I'm working in the inner city of New Orleans and for a couple months. And we were, it was a really bad situation. It was like a halfway house down there. And I tell you what, I got some great stories from that time. And we, were going, we had to go to this one church. It was the church that the leaders of this halfway house went to. And I guess I understood why the leaders were so weird by going to their church. Uh, it was led by this prophetess uh, woman. And so you could just imagine Eric Ludy in a church with a prophetess. Uh, and so I was so uncomfortable in this whole thing. This whole thing was just weird. And this lady at the end of the service would have people come up that wanted to have prophecies over them, and she would start prophesying. But her prophecies were weird. That's all I can say. Okay, I'm not making a statement on prophecy. I'm making a statement on this woman and this church. Uh, so there was this one time where she had this young man who I had really been praying for in the church. I was so concerned about everyone in this church. I mean, like this protector guy. I'm like, dear God, I have to do something. But I had no idea what to do. I have no position in the church, no voice in the church. And so this lady is praying and prophesying over this young man that he is going to suffer and die. So I rise up from my seat, walk to the front, and kneel down and pray against it. Four feet from her. A defining moment in my life. Standing with the cross on Bourbon Street. I'm one of those guys that understands social sensitivity. I can read people. I can understand society and societal expectations. So I understand what is cool. I understand what is hip. I also understand what is not. And so having this is actually a pain in the neck in being a Christian. I would, you know, some people have a sense of style. Some people have a sense of humor. Well, I have a sense of an audience. I have a sense of culture. And so therefore, that's actually been one of the hardest things for me because I can read a situation and I know full well that if I do that, what it's going to be perceived as to the audience. Oh, so when it comes to sharing the gospel, I'm fairly well versed in the fact that people don't like other people coming up to them on the streets and talking to them about Jesus. If you were to ask just your common people out there, so what do you think about that? You're going to find a high percentage of people don't like it. And so someone like me says, well, since no one likes it, why would we do it? However, just a key point in Christianity, we don't give the culture what their flesh asks for. We give them what God asks us to give them, which is loving truth. And sometimes that doesn't come in the package that they are wishing for. In fact, oftentimes it doesn't. Ah, that's hard. That's hard. That's really hard. And so I was on this missions team, and they were going to carry a cross or stand with a cross in the midst of Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras. Now, I'm not going to go into that. If you don't know what Bourbon Street is, you don't know what Mardi Gras is, just let me tell you, it's like Satan's hangout. Okay? It's a bad idea. Okay? I mean, come on, guys. Let's get sane here. You're going to have a cross in the middle of Bourbon Street. And it's just like this huge cross, too. Oh, we don't have a cross up here anymore. It's like this huge cross. And, you know, in, well, I'll get to the story. So I said to them, no. Uh, Eric, do you want to come? No. No, thank you. I will stay home and, and pray. Okay, I'll do something spiritual, but that's not it. And my sensitivities, my social sensitivities were just like, eh, 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 eh. No, do not do that, Eric. I love Jesus, but I don't want to be a fool. And so 
they're, they're sort of praying for me. They said, would you at least pray about it? Yeah, I'll pray about it. Oh, why, why do you say stuff like that? I'll pray about it. Well, I come in to talk to God about it. I was like, God, I told them I'd pray about it. God, I'm, I'm assuming you, you're reading me. I shouldn't do this type of thing. I'm not built for this kind of thing. I had such a clear sense I need to join them. Like, oh, no. And even as we were walking to Bourbon Street, I'm distancing myself from the people carrying these pieces of the cross. It's like, how weird would that look? Seeing this group of people walking along with these big, huge wooden beams. It's like, okay, I'm not with them. I, I'm not with them. I was distancing myself. I'm literally walking 20 feet away going, huh, who are they? Uh, it's just horrifying to look back on. We get to Bourbon Street, and everyone's supposed to be sharing the gospel now, and they're setting up the cross. Everyone was short in the group. I'm not that tall, but I was like the only one above like 5'5", five five, I guess. And they couldn't get the beam in. So they look over at me, and they're like, hey, Ludi, could you help us here? I'm like over, you know, 30 feet away going, hey, hey, hey. Uh, I'm like, ah, and I come up, I fix the beam, and I, like, was scampering off. It's like, hi, hi, you didn't see that. I had nothing to do with that. I was just helping him, just helping, just being a good guy. And so I'm, like, trying to, you know, now it's my time to witness about Jesus. Well, guess what? No one's just coming up to a guy standing, you know, bouncing on his toes on Bourbon Street going, do you have a hope inside of you that I should hear about? <laughs> uh, and so nothing's happening. And I'm watching these people with the cross, and they're being mocked and ridiculed. People are throwing beer on them, cursing them. I'm thinking, what idiots? Why would you do that to yourself? The next thing you know, someone walks over and says, Eric, they wanted to know if you wanted to hold the cross. Now, what do you think my answer would be? Firstborn life, not on your life. No way. Something else speaks. I can't explain it. Yeah. Where did that come from? I find myself walking over to the cross and putting my arm around it. My life was changed. That decision is one of the key moments of my life because I moved into a different realm. Any of you that have ever crossed the threshold of obedience, when you have deliberately stepped out and said yes to a hard thing, grace meets you. And actually, it was one of the most joy-filled nights of my life. I've, my face was hurting. I was smiling so big all night long. I was cursed. I was ridiculed. People splashed beer on me, bumped into me purposely to try and knock me over. And I loved it. How did I discover it? I had to step through a decision. But I needed God to carry me. So we're talking about obedience, being learned through suffering. The cross is the ultimate picture of capital O, obedience. It is. The best picture of capital O, obedience this world has ever seen. So remember the four things that I said mark each of my stories? You're going to notice it's strange, but it marks his story. It was difficult in the doing. Don't ever think for a moment that the cross was easy. The cross was humanly difficult. It was an invitation to suffer. Come, son, I have a cross for you. Who would ever choose that? And yet he did. It looked like darkness had won. Remember the hooded creatures? It looked like darkness was reigning supreme in this. All even turned dark. Thunder, lightning, earthquake. I mean, it's looking bad. And yet it looks bad. I know. But what's actually happening? the ultimate triumph. It was in actuality the crushing of the head of our great enemy and the liberation of our souls. 
Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Capital O, obedience. It is a version of obeying that is beyond what you and I have in our own ability to do. This is God-ability. By the way, for those that are students at Ellerslie, you'll learn about God-ability this week. It's called grace. You need something outside of you to help you do it. Without the God factor, capital O is never realized. You can esteem it. You can esteem Jesus' obedience. You can esteem the apostles' obedience. You can esteem Christian history and all the great men and women throughout history that have laid down their lives and said yes to God. You will never find it if you dig in your own pockets trying to find it. This is something that only God has. So another season in my life, learning to stand on the word. The only one not headed to Toronto. I think it was, I think it was Friday I even mentioned this to the students. Back when I was 21 or so, uh, somewhere, 2021, there was a huge, quote-unquote, revival that broke out in Toronto, Canada. And it was called the Laughing Revival. And I was in a church that obviously was very susceptible to whatever was going on. I was in Michigan, and they were very interested in this. And they were all, like, getting in cars, buses, and going up there. I mean, the whole church. And they wanted me to come. And I was going through a season of my life of very intentional turning to the Word of God instead of my emotion, instead of my feeling. I wanted to examine things in the Word and say, God, I want your Holy Spirit. I want you to be powerful in my life, but the only way for me to test and approve the Holy Spirit is with your Word. And why is it that everything I hear about this bothers me? Why is it that Everyone else seems to ignore what the Word of God says when measuring this revival, and they're going. This is so hard because I was a young guy, and yet I have everyone in my church going except for me. Eric Ludy makes a decision to stay home. Ah, defining moment. The sleeper car. So Leslie and I have an extraordinary love story. We really do. It's an amazing love story. But in this love story, even before we were married, uh, and there is some key moments in it, Leslie and I were intentional towards each other. In other words, we had a relationship, but it was pretty far from, uh, from marriage at the time. Well, actually, you know, it was six months from marriage. So it wasn't that far. Six months. And we had gone on a, a trip with my parents uh, and my sister to the northeast. So we'd gone up to Maine and up into Prince Edward Island. Beautiful. Then we came back down to Massachusetts. We're at Plymouth Plantation. And I told my mom we need to get going because we're, we need, we're, it was a train trip too. We need to get to the train uh, depot in Boston, uh, South Station, Boston, and before rush hour. And my mom's like, honey, you're always in a hurry. We'll be fine. I'm like, we have to return the rental car and we have to get to South Station, Boston. According to my figures, which I'm this mathematician guy, always with figures and everything, uh, we're going to be late if we don't leave right now. And my mom's like, honey, honey, let's enjoy this. This is my classic relationship with my mom. And so I'm like frustrated, going, oh, and I'm miserable the whole time. My mom's right. I do not enjoy it once I make these decisions to grumble. Uh, however, 
we did run into a traffic jam, and my dad was now panicked as he's driving down the road in our rental car going, I can't get, I can't get us there. If I go drop off the rental car, then I can't uh, get to the... Th so what ends up happening is my dad goes to the rental car place dr after dropping us off at South Station, Boston. My mom stays and waits for my dad, so she misses the train along with my dad, and my sister, Leslie, and I end up getting the train. So we had three sleeper cars uh, on this train trip from Boston to Chicago and then Chicago to Denver. And the way it worked out is that it was, so since we had three, well, my parents had one and I was going to have one and then my sister and Leslie were going to have one. Everything's fine to Chicago. And then from Chicago to Denver, my sister got off in Chicago. So now we had one sleeper car for Leslie and I. And if you know my value system, you'd understand why this would create a tension. First of all, I'm in, I, think I, was, I think I was engaged. I was. I was engaged to Leslie, and I wanted to share a sleeper car with her. I thought that sounded really fun. Uh, however, and no one would know. I mean, come on. This is, I, don't, and I even asked about, are there any other uh, rooms available? Are there any other uh, spots available? Packed. There's no other, no other spots. So I have no choice other than to be in the sleeper car, right? I mean, this is just literally the way it is. And I remember being in that sleeper car. Les and I are sitting there, and we're talking. And I had to make a decision. And it's a decision that has greatly impacted the course of my life. Uh, Les, you, you stay in here. I'm, I'm going to find some place. You know what I found? The observation car. A plastic yellow seat all night long. And in the observation car, obviously, they try and make it so that no one sleeps there. All night long, those guys, those porters are walking through. The doors open. <laughs> and they walk through. So the door opens. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, 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 ah. And then they walk to the other side. <laughs> all night long. And believe me, it's pitch black out. There's nothing to observe out there. <laughs> Extreme suffering. And yet a defining moment in my soul. To make a decision when no one can see. To make a decision where I can live with it. And say, even in 40 years, I look back and I say, that's it. If a generation is watching, would they say, that's the pattern I want to follow? The odd message in Australia. I did talk about this on Friday with the students. I came down and the Laughing Revival had preceded me down in Australia along the whole uh, eastern coastline of Australia. And every church I'd gone to was impacted by the Laughing Revival. And so they wanted revival. That's what they were wanting. And, but it was this weird form of revival that included barking like dogs, roaring like lions, and slithering like snakes. It was weird. That's all I can say. And so the first church I show up at, I'm next to speak uh, in this revival. They were just on Australia, the Australia Today show. Uh, it was like this huge deal. This was a, a big church in northern Australia. And everyone was watching it to see how this revival would continue. And I was the next one to speak. And it was something like the last 28 people that have been here, revival has broken out when they've spoken. And I'm next. And I made a decision. I spoke on true revival. And no one laughed. No one barked. No one roared. And no one slithered. <laughs> and yet, as I shared the story on Friday, something amazing happened. And it set a course in my life spiritually to recognize I cannot make a decision based on what an audience wants. I need to follow the truth.
the first conversation with the devil. This is awkward. Huh? Uh, what are you doing having a conversation with the devil? Well, it wasn't like I set it up. Uh, see, there was a time in my life when we first started ministry. We were being invited all over the world to speak, and it was an extremely hard season. Oh, wow. And the difficulties that attended it were far beyond anything I was ready for. I was not trained for ministry. I was not trained for the suffering and the trials and the proving that would come in ministry. I had no idea what I was in for. And as a result, I was off balance, and the devil was going to play that. And every time I would travel, Leslie would get sick. We had, we, it's like we could see it, but we kept assuming that that was God. That God was just sort of saying, yeah, it's good that Leslie's sick. I just want you to go through this. Instead of recognizing the devil had a plan. The devil wanted to undermine what was going on, and I needed to learn to resist him. I needed to learn to stand on truth and fight. I just wasn't a fighter. And so in this, this first conversation with the devil was something like this. Eric, you give up this ministry, and I'll let you go. In other words, he was hounding me. I mean, I... And I felt it. It was such a palpable oppression. Everything from finances to health. I had, Leslie and I had taken a stand for truth in our generation. And I had no idea what accompanied that. But it was all hell. And we were just being hit all over the place. And the devil saying, look, you let go of this and I'll stop hitting you. I'll let you go. And I know it's going to sound disappointing to you, but that's what I wanted to hear. It's like, okay, what do we need to do? How do we shake on this? So I got together with Leslie's parents, and Leslie was there, and I said, look, Leslie and I have decided that we're going to step down from ministry. We just, I feel like the devil has made it clear. If I let go of this, he'll let go of us. So that's what we're planning on doing. Key moment in my life, Leslie's mom says, Eric, he's lying to you. You know too much. He will not stop until he kills you. So there I am sitting there processing this. I stood up. We are not stopping. I went from declaring that we're stopping <laughs> to suddenly we are not stopping. Key decision in my life. So how do we obey? That's sort of where it comes down to right now for us. As you're hearing these stories, I don't know how you relate. In other words, we all have our moments of proving and testing. Most of us want to escape them instead of recognizing that this is the raw material of strength for life. You could avoid a gym your entire life and never lift weights, never have the resistance of weight against it, and you will always remain weak. In other words, there is a need to engage with these weights, with these challenges in a proper way where you approach them with a smile and say, God, thank you. And you press against it, and you will find that it changes your life. So how do we obey? Two truths that are imperative. First truth, faithful is he who has called us who also will do it. You're being asked to do something. One of the key truths that I hold on to every time I face a difficult challenge from God is if he has called me, he will do it. I remember one moment, I was laying in my bed, it was pitch black in the room, and God was asking for something. I don't remember what it was, but I was laying in my bed, and I raised my hands up to say, God, I don't even know how to let go of this. It so holds me. It is like something that I don't feel I can live without, yet I know you're asking for it. And 
above my head. It was the strangest thing, but my hands came together and fell to my chest. I always remember that. Every time I get to a point of obedience. In other words, he will do the work of taking care of it. It's something, my job is to simply say, God, I need you. His job is to put it to death. He can do it. Faithful is he who has called us, who also will do it. Second, apart from me, you can do nothing. Simple rule of thumb. You want to obey with capital O obedience, you better be a part of him. It's the branch being grafted into a vine. Where is the sap? It's not in the branch unless the branch is in the vine. The branch must cling to the vine. Stay there, remain there. And when you do, the sap of that, that vine, that life will course into you and enable this branch, which is you, to bear fruit that is other than you. That branch can't do it in and of itself. That is the type of fruit that comes out of the vine. But if you abide, faithful as he who has called you, who also will bear that fruit, who will enable you to have capital O, obedience, the type of obedience that goes past what the natural man would ever do. Have you ever had it where there's things in your life you're thinking, I can't believe I just did that. I would never have done that in the past. Yeah, I've had that quote quite a few times in my life. Old Eric would have never done that. You would have never caught Eric, old Eric dead doing that type of stuff, and now Eric does it. What's happened to Eric? Well, Eric's a new Eric. It's a new Eric that has been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus and transformed so that no longer does this new Eric think and reason like an old Eric, but I actually think and reason differently, and I have power to do things that otherwise I would never do. The sprinkler head. Maybe this is because I'm dealing with sprinklers uh, this week that this illustration came up. But imagine that you received a command. Water this ground with my heavenly water and make it green. Okay, and you're just a sprinkler head. Could you imagine how hard it would be to water a patch of grass if all you are is a sprinkler head? You see, a sprinkler head needs something outside of itself to do the job. And so it must sink down into the soil, uh, deny itself from view, and get into that pipeline. Uh, and that's the pipeline of grace. It's the, where the living water is. So, do you need the movement again? You need to sink down. <laughs> Some of you are like, I hope he does that again. <laughs> you need to sink down into that soil and be buried with Christ. And what you find in that denial of self, where you are buried, and everyone loses sight of you, is that you actually enter into a pipeline of strength and it's pressurized. And when that sprinkler head submits and opens itself up to that grace, what happens? It's not the sprinkler head itself that is able to shoot the water. The sprinkler head is merely the instrument through which that pressure is able to express itself. The Spirit of God has chosen us as those sprinkler heads. We must choose to sink in... Oh, Sink in to that line, that pipeline, and receive that pressure of grace, the Holy Spirit. We must allow God to keep the pebbles out that will block the line. We must allow this line to stay clean, and we also must choose to allow our head to spring up and spray. There's things that we do. I mean, God, He's given us a will, and we can block the flow of that spring. Have you ever had a bad sprinkler head? You know, it's like, what's wrong with this thing? You want to kick it? It's not functioning the way it should, and it's going to be replaced. 
Okay, hey, we, we need to get a new sprinkler head here because that's not working. A working sprinkler head is able to fulfill the command even though in and of itself it can do nothing. So this is what we oftentimes at Ellerson will call the yielding and the exerting. The yielding is giving up, opening yourself up to the pipeline, the pressurized water. Okay, God, come in. Do what you want in this life. That's the yielding. In and of myself, I cannot do it. But then the exerting is literally to take that pressure and to shoot that sprinkler head up and go and begin to give out that which God has given you. That's the obedience. And so obedience is wrapped in those two things. It's not just one of them because you could choose to go but not be attached to the pipeline and it's not very impressive, believe me. And you could yield and say, God, give me all the benefit, but I don't want to ever get in an uncomfortable spot and give up that benefit. Just keep me below the ground. I'm actually fine here. I don't want to stick my head up and get mowed off. Oswald Chambers. Remember I talked about that December 1st time I opened up this. This is the, the key day in my life where there was a student in the discipleship school that didn't have money. And I, I mean, I had this clear sense of what God wanted me to do, but I was so uncomfortable. I was like, God, you can't. How would I do that? This is what I read. We only realize the power of the moral law when it comes with an if. God never coerces us. In one mood, we wish he would make us do the thing. And in another mood, we wish he would leave us alone. You ever felt that? God, if you really want me to do this, just force me to do it. And then the other side is, God, could you just leave me alone? Why can't you just give me the benefits of heaven without this commission? Why do I have to be obedient? Why couldn't I just go to heaven? God, I want the good stuff without the difficulty. And yet that's not the kingdom pattern. God gives us the good stuff, the resurrection life, through the cross. You don't get to resurrection life unless you go through the cross. There needs to be a death and a burial before you get in that grave. What are you going to do in the grave? Why are you there in the first place if you haven't died and were buried? That's how he gets us to the good stuff. And in another mood, we wish he would leave us alone. Whenever God's will is in the ascendant, all compulsion is gone. Listen to this. This is a line I've quoted to my own soul so many times. When we choose deliberately to obey him, then he will tax the remotest star and the last grain of sand to assist us with all his almighty power. You see, God will back us up. Oftentimes what we have is that step. And it's a wobbly need step. It's a weak step where our gut is completely empty as we stand up and we're feeling wobbly. But when we take that step of decision to agree with God out of love, out of submission, out of self-sacrifice and trust, when we deliberately choose to obey him, he taxes the remotest star and the last grain of sand to assist us. And that's why obedience transforms not just us, but the world around us. It's the vehicle through which God showers his grace upon this world. Learning to suffer well. So this is the third season to walk you through in some short stories. So Leslie and I... Uh, we're A-list authors is what they called us, okay? That means basically we can write a book and it gets published. It will sell X amount, almost guaranteed. And so you, that guaranteed amount of sales equates to royalty checks because when you sign a book contract, they're going to give you what they think you could sell in the first year up front. And so Leslie and I could live this way. 
And it's pretty, most people on earth cannot live as authors. It's a hard thing to do. Less than I had a position. We were in a good position. And yet, you know what that hinged on? Us traveling the world and speaking. You know what I do now? Was what we could call the death knell to my writing career. Now, there's a couple things that fed to it. The next one will, uh, will play to that too. But when Les and I said, we feel burdened that we need to invest in a smaller amount of people for a season, that we need to teach discipleship, we need to actually work with people. We'd go to places, we could be speaking to thousands of people and they would all be on their face at the end. I mean, we'd see the power of God all over the world. And yet we would leave and there was no one to disciple them. And as a result, there was an ache, a hollowness. I felt like, what is the use of this? If I'm just throwing seed down, but then it's always being choked out or it's being burnt out and there's no ability for it to take root, I feel like this is a hollow ministry. God, what can I do? And this is where the burden came for us to literally stop speaking and begin to set down roots and to begin to build what you see here. Well, that was a huge loss point for us. I mean, basically, our finances and everything that we had up to that point had nothing to hold them up when we stopped speaking. Our book sales go way down when we're not in front of big audiences constantly. The publishers were just like, hey, you can't do this to us. You can't do this to us. And it was hard, but it was significant in my life. In other words, to do that which doesn't look financially smart but to be obedient to God is a huge decision. The book that ended my writing career. So, you know, Eric and Leslie can still write books, right? Now, my writing career isn't actually over. It's more just in the big publishing world. Yeah, Eric's not the most popular guy. So there was a book I was supposed to write uh, called The Five Arts of Intimacy. I mean, a good, soft, comfortable book. I mean, still good, powerful stuff. But instead, I couldn't write it. I was so burdened that I needed to write uh, a book about the manly stuff returning to Christianity again, that we had lost manhood in the church, that we'd been uh, effeminized as a church. It's like, Eric, you, do you realize what that will do to you if you actually publish that? Well, so I wrote that. Uh, this is the book that Les, the classic story. I, I took the idea to Les, and I said, I can't write this other one. I have no passion for it at all. This is what I have a passion for. It's called the Bravehearted Gospel. And Leslie said, you need to write it, and when you write it, write it like a man. <laughs> I will. <laughs> this decision to stand up for baby Harper. So for Leslie and I, traveling the world and having so many responsibilities, the idea of family always seemed... Mm, inconvenient. Can I say it that way? In other words, how in the world are we going to travel and have a family? And so when Hudson came along, it totally changed us. I mean, it was a, it was a big thing. I'm not calling that a moment of obedience, okay? I'm just saying Hudson came along. And, but in the process, we had a miscarriage for our second child, which shook us to the core. It was a very significant thing that took place in our life. And God humbled us he brought us low into a season of allowing him to search us and try us and show us where there were open gaps in our life where the enemy could get in. And he corrected us. It was a major season in our life of reconstruction because we were frontline leaders, 
but we were taking in certain ideas from the culture that were still impacting us and making us weak in ministry. And so in this process, God turned us outward. And it was a profound season of change for us where we began to say, you know what? There are a lot of dying people and hurting people in this world. We have one life to live. Let's pour our life out for them. And so we asked God, God, where do you want us to start? And we felt like he wanted to start, or us to start with orphans. And so we, we went down to a local uh, adoption agency here. That was our first step after two weeks of fasting. We felt like the first step was to go to this uh, adoption agency in, Love, in Berthoud. And not to adopt. We were just going to go in and figure out how we could use our platform to help those that were vulnerable. And in so doing, uh, we came across an 8 by 10 picture of a little uh, girl that uh, has the cutest hands on earth. Have you ever seen Harper's hands? They're her special hands. She asked me the other day if she thought that she would still have her special hands when she got older. And I told her, it's my desire because those are one of my favorite things in all the world is those little special hands. But that, that encounter with that little girl and our decision to actually stand up and say, we'll fight for her has changed the trajectory of my life. If you look at my family infrastructure, you're going to notice that it didn't just stop there. It's impacted every corner of my life. And though it has come with much suffering, kids bring suffering. But it brings the most beautiful outcomes. In other words, what looks challenging at first, there's some people that don't want kids because all they see is the challenge. Some people don't want to get in shape because all they see is the challenge of getting in shape. But don't you see beyond that? Don't you see what comes from facing that head on with the spirit of grace? God transforms that into the most beautiful, lovely aspects of life. The decision to start Ellerslie. I've had more suffering come into my life through that decision than any other by far. Difficulty piled upon difficulty has come into my life. And yet, I would say, probably one of the greatest decisions I've ever made in my life. You see, I have a different ability now to evaluate decisions. Decisions aren't just good or bad decisions based on if they bring pleasure to your life or if they put money in your pocketbook. But there's certain decisions that sponsor the flow of grace through your life that bring about a greater intimacy with Jesus, a greater closeness, a greater uh, magnification of him in your life. And that's what this did for me. Has it been hard? Oh, yeah. Uh, but I, if I had a chance to see my life and say, Eric, would you make that decision again? Of course I would. How could I not? Being presidential was a decision. Leadership, we, I can't go into much detail on this, so let it suffice to say that there were some critical challenges that we faced right before Ellerslie started. And they were enough to bring this whole thing down even before it started. And there was one key moment. I was sitting in Orlando, Florida. I remember the moment very, very well, and I knew what I needed to do. One of the things I've learned about leadership and one of the things I'd even teach you about leadership is when you are given a responsibility, whatever your sheep pen is, to know how to, according to God's truth and his word, to rise up and do the hard thing. 
to lead and to protect your flock, whatever that is. And that concept, which I call being presidential, which happened back before Ellerslie started, but has defined my leadership style of being willing to do hard things to protect sheep. I tell you what, it's huge. Was it hard? Yes. The second conversation with the devil. <laughs> That's all I have, don't worry. I don't, I don't like to talk to him very much. I do talk at him every now and then with like a rebuke or a, a resist. But it's not that I have conversations with them. And I don't even know how to describe it. I don't want you to get all weird about it. I have the word prophetess in my list of things, and then I have conversations with the devil. They're not ones that I chose to have. It's just moments when it was so clear what the devil was asking or submitting to me. And in this situation, this is how I would describe it. We had finished the first two semesters of Ellerslie, and it was hard. I mean, it was like hanging by the skin of my teeth type of living. It was hard, battle fought, you know, grenades going off and gunpowder in the air, shrapnel in my shoulder. But we made it through the first two semesters. And I felt like the devil was sort of like clapping, going, well done. Well done, Ludi. You did it. You beat me. You did it. Okay, I'm going to acknowledge it. You got me on that one. So let's make a deal. You keep your little Bible college, your little thing here in Windsor, and you do just what you're doing now. Hey, I'll leave you alone. I'll let you be. You have your little party, your discipleship thing. But if you take one more step forward, if you keep progressing with this thing, I'm going to stick all hell on you. Well, there comes a decision. I sat down with my staff. I said, hey, guys, I feel like uh, the devil's uh, set out an offer for us. Now, remember, you know my history, right? So I know what these offer sheets look like. And I said, here's the deal. If we just keep what we have, supposedly he's going to leave us alone. But if we step forward, the threat sounds pretty big. He's going to bring all hell against us. So I looked at our staff, and I said, we're moving forward. It was a decision. It's a decision that defines the character in my life and also of this environment that you're in. In other words, I don't buy the bluster of the enemy. I believe in the bigness of my God. And I believe that greater is he that is in me, that is in us as a body, than he that is in this world. He can make all the noise he wants. However, we have a job to do. And that's capital O, obedience. No matter the cost, no matter the pain, no matter the trials that come with it. And I wouldn't even argue if you were to say, so what happened as a result? I mean, that's going back like six years. Yeah, it's been intense. The devil has done his best. And yet, that's a decision that I stand by. And even today, because there's six years that I'm not covering in this, because I almost feel like they're too close for me to be able to have clear perspective to make a statement to you saying those are the best decisions I ever made. So I'm stopping literally six years ago to say, I understand the significance of these decisions. They were hard, and they came with difficulty, and they came with suffering. You have decisions that are before you that, yes, are hard, But I want you to know, this is from someone who's walked through this. There is never a step of obedience enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will ever regret in your entire life when made. Never. 
the principle of the obvious. The men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus, remember that? Calmed the winds and the waves. So here's the principle of the obvious. If winds and waves obey him, I think we ought to obey him. You see, it doesn't make any sense for God's creation to submit and then us to keep uh, standing off and holding him at bay. I say... The principle of the obvious is he's deserving. And if he's going to enable you to obey, what's there to stop you? See, I know the argument inside of you, and that is it's difficult. It's hard. You want the easy way. Well, if you want the easy way, uh, that's the door back there. Christianity is not the easy way. Christianity is a challenge, but it is attended by the comforts of heaven. All I can say is, to the degree that it's difficult, there is a consolation that we receive. That's just the biblical word for it. It's a comfort. There is an equal and opposite comfort that comes. In fact, it's greater measure than even the difficulty you will face. Now, I've never had a baby, so it's dangerous territory, but this is Paul's illustration talking about travail. You are being called to enter into travail to bring something to this earth, to bring a picture of God's grace and glory to this earth. But in so doing, there is pain. There is difficulty. It's known as travail. But when the life comes forth, it causes the pain. Now, this is why it's dangerous for me to make comment on this. It causes the pain to pale in comparison with what was gained in and through it. Obedience. Obedience does have a very real challenge to it. Yes. It will touch your pride. It will challenge your comforts. It will call you to come and die. But what you receive as a consolation of the closeness and the intimacy with Christ as you walk exceeds, in fact, far exceeds the difficulties you face. It's actually irrational and illogical not to move forward if you knew what I know. I know the power of God to enable, and I know the power of God to console and to help in the midst of difficulty. Whatever you face that is a challenge, God is able to carry you through it. The principle of trajectory. One of the key points that if I could pass it on to you, this is like a classic parent thing. You know, parents look at child, children and they're like, if you only knew how much this would impact you, then you would do it. You would start practicing the piano. You'll never regret it if you really learn the piano. When you get older, you'll thank me. You know, it's one of those kind of comments. The decisions you are making now actually have huge effect upon where you're going. If you establish a pattern of disobedience in your soul, you have a completely different life that awaits you. But when in your younger years you actually make decision to obey and to set a trajectory, an aim, a direction in place, I mean, I can look back at those 17 stories and say, here I am. That's me. That's my life. My life is a result of those decisions of yielding and saying, God, I am so weak and I don't know how in the world I could do that, but I lean on you right now. Carry me. It's hard. It was a challenge. And yet, big smile on my face as a result. Thank you, Jesus, for carrying me through that. 
Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. If you will obey his voice. If you will obey him, then you become his peculiar treasure. You become one that has intimate access unto his grace, his presence, and his power. If you obey. You see, obedience needs God to work. At the same time, obedience needs you to decide. It works both ways. In other words, God won't force you, but he will woo you. And part of the way he woos you is in seeing clearly the realities of the kingdom of heaven. And you say, he's worthy of it. I desire to do this for him because I love him. You see, our motivation is for him. And when we see it, we take a weak first step maybe, but then the power of God lifts us and carries us. What I ask of you is for you to begin to ponder what we would call the predecided yes, Lord. In other words, you might not be asked to do something specific right now. You may not have something in your mind that says, okay, I need to do this. Boy, that's going to be hard. However, what I would ask of you to do is to say, is, answer the question, is he worthy? Is he worthy of your obedience? Do you love him? And if you don't love him to the degree that you'd be willing to lay down your life, ask for the Holy Spirit to cultivate such a love in you that you would see his worthiness and that you would love and adore him in such a way that says, God, whatever you would desire. My answer, even before you ask, is yes, Lord. Even before he asks, Now, the danger with that is he could ask anything. And you've already said yes. Nope. However, if you love him, if you trust him, then wouldn't you agree to what he's going to ask of you even before he asks? Because he knows what's best. He knows why you're here on earth. I understand there's a tension in all of these things. But I tell you what, when you deliberately choose to obey him, you discover something. You discover heaven on earth. He will tax the remotest star and the last grain of sand to assist you with all his almighty power. You see, you're going to obey something. You will be obedient to something. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? It's either of sin resulting in death or it's of obedience resulting in righteousness. So you have a choice. You can make choices that result in death or you could make choices that result in the manifestation and the revelation of the very nature of God Almighty. And that's obedience. Obedience unto his word. Obedience unto the Holy Spirit. Obedience to do things that aren't going to be classified as comfortable in this natural realm. But they will make your list in the years to come when someone says, so what made you who you are? Say, well, there's a few moments that define my life. And there'll be moments that you can point at of obedience. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. 
For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.